Welcome to Fatal Follower Presents, a spooky, safe space to celebrate horror and all things horror adjacent. Come and geek out with your creep out. I'm your host, Donnie Ybarra, and joining me again is my partner in grime, Gabriel. Welcome to the show, Gabriel. Thank you, Donnie. It's a pleasure to be here again. All right, so we're going to get to the new news first. Last week, we caught two episodes of the Apple TV Plus series, Lizzie's Story starring Julianne Moore, Clive Owen, and Jennifer Jason Lee last week. Each episode is written by Stephen King. Uh, like I said, we caught two of the episodes. Uh, the story is about a widow becomes the object of a dangerous stalker, played by Dane DeHaan, obsessed with her husband's work. Now, we watched the episodes. Uh, I think there's one or two that are uploaded. What did you think of, uh, what were your initial impressions of the series so far? I liked it to a degree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I felt that it was a little bit too decompressed. Um, it, it was extremely well acted, though. Mm -hmm. What do you say by decompressed? What do you mean? Like the episodes felt a little bit too long. Okay. Um, and I felt that the amount of information that we were being given was not uh, enough for the length of the episode. Yeah. I mean, I understand that he's trying to set the stage for something. And the first episode was creepy in certain parts yeah. and interesting and enjoyable. But then again, I didn't feel that we were given enough information for what was happening. And yes, it slowly uh, leaks in as the narrative unfolds. So you're introduced to Julianne Moore's character first. Um, there are a lot of uh, moments in the in the first episode where um, you see her in a pool of water and she there's like a jump in time and it shows um, a flashback of her and her husband. And then she's out of the pool, she's getting ready, and there are moments that uh, feel a little bit like sort of like a fever dream where there's this uh, atmosphere that's set up that's very abstract lots of uh, slow pans around uh, the rooms that she occupies. And then uh, a lot of the uh, set pieces are emphasizing like the color red. So it's very artistic and uh, sort of uh, the, pr the production value. And I think the, the set pieces are incredible, but I agree there, there are some moments where I'm trying to figure out, okay, so what's, uh, what's the series about? Like, because I haven't read the book yet, so I'd, I'm not really familiar with the story per se. Uh, I think the second episode was a little bit uh, better because it kind of gave us the introduction of uh, of more of Dane DeHaan's character with the stalker, who was he's playing up the role really well. I think uh, he's playing a uh, psychotic fan um, of her husband, who um, is sort of. Um, the piece to get uh, the story moving. So you kind of learn why he's um, he's sort of uh, introduced to uh, her as uh, the grieving wife and also her husband's, um, uh, I think it's her his publishing agent. And so you get an idea of like their relationship and sort of why uh, the stalker is introduced into the story. Um, and then, you also get bits and pieces of uh, 
of Julianne Moore's, or Lizzie, uh, her sister and their dynamic and their relationship. And you get a little bit more backstory of, uh, of Lizzie and her husband's um, when they first met and sort of uh, what type of artist he was, because he was, he's sort of an eccentric uh, person and a creator. And so you get a little peek into his mind and his creative process and like how the world uh, that he occupies when he's creating his universes for the books. Um, you get to see that. And that is what I enjoyed about it was that abstract element of um, being introduced to the place that he goes to um, in his mind um, and, and the place that Lizzie sort of introduced and also uh, other characters in, in the story. Um, to me, I think it kind of plays out like, I remember uh, in previous episodes, I mentioned I'm not really necessarily a fan of a lot of the A24 horror movies because I think they can be a little uh, too heady for what they're trying to sell. Aside from like The Witch and Hereditary, I think that most of them are really a miss for me. But I will say that Stephen King writing his own work, adapting his own work into this series, it kind of reminds me of an A24 production where there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of um, abstract uh, visuals, but there isn't really a meat to the story yet. And it's it's slow burn. Um, do you, what do you think? I would agree. I, I think, again, it's very focused on the art part. Like I think when we were watching that first episode and I said, oh, wow, my eyes. And you were like, what? And I'm like, look look at the house and her sweater. It's all very red. Like there's there was a saturation of red. Like the house is white, but it has a lot of red shutters and red uh, things hanging. And then her sweater was very red. Yeah, there's like a red focal point in right. a lot of the So there are so many scenes where there's like this color saturation yeah. kind of thing. and. Did you ever watch the remake of The Omen? Uh, I, I did. They, they did that with that movie. If you, if you remember, it's, it's, I haven't seen it in forever, but they did that with the color red. Is Everything was, uh, all the red was taken out of the movie, but what uh, either the mom was wearing or the kid like was around. So there was that red uh, emphasis on like that color. And I think that's kind of what they're doing here is like that emphasis of red. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I watched that Omen remake and I didn't really enjoy it. So it was one of those things that I'm like, <laughs> yeah, forget forgot about it. Forgettable. <laughs> um, the, I think uh, just one thing, because you said that uh, the character that Ron Cephas Jones plays Dashmill was his publisher, but I think that he's just an academic. Oh, okay. He's just someone who Oh, right, studies. because there's that element where they say, there's like a quote in that movie or in the show where to be more afraid of academics than yeah, so your fans yeah, so or something or like something that. that. She's like, I, I realize that the academics are way worse than everybody else. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I, I think that he's simply an obsessed academic with his work yeah. and, and that's how he connected with uh, the Dane Dehan Jim Dooley's character, yeah. um, and they have some interesting flashbacks. And again, I, I want to point out that the acting from everybody yeah. is top notch. Oh yeah, Julianne Moore sells it. Jennifer Jason Lee sells it. Jennifer the Jason Lee does an amazing. Sort of well, I mean, unsympathetic how is sister. Not? <laughs> uh, Joan Allen. Joan is, Allen is doing a great job. Everybody is, is doing an amazing job. Uh, do you remember Joan Allen from the Born Supremacy? I did. Yeah. 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 So and she's playing a very different kind of character. Um, yeah. So it is, again, it's... It's moody and slow. Yes. So I feel that it would be better to see it in one sitting. It, it could yeah. be that it's one of those things that is better to see it in one sitting yeah. rather than... It's, it's more of a binge series, kind of like The Outsider, I the think. Insider, yes, yes. I was, the Outsider worked better as a binge. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Like The Outsider, I, I mean, we binged it. We didn't yeah. watch yeah. it week by week, but I'm pretty sure that if we had watched it week by week, we would have yeah. been feeling what many other people who wrote reviews on several websites saying that the series was kind of slow and things like that. And it's like, yeah, yeah. If, if you have to wait a week 
to get the next installment for something that yeah. in itself is slow. Well, and Stephen King, I think, as a writer in his books, he tends to uh, to do that. He's very uh, he's he really stretches stories out, and that may not be to the benefit of a series, but as this this as a movie would have worked, I think, really well because if you've seen like Secret Window or even The Shining, where he write or or misery where he writes these writers in these perilous situations. Uh, he's really, he really excels in those stories and because he writes, I think from that experience. So I think that he puts himself into a lot of those writer roles. And, uh, and I was very, I was very curious to watch this and I'm now curious to read it because again, Stephen King says this is his favorite story. So I'm anxious to read or uh, to watch more of the episodes. I mean, I think that's also part of the difference between mediums, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, and there are several stories that I think would work better as a series. They don't necessarily need to be, you know, 10 episodes. Some of them could work great as a six episode series or things yeah. like that. And I think that several streamers are coming to the realization that just having to do a 14 episode or 22 episode season. Like the season doesn't have to be 22 episodes. Yeah, and I think that's the, well, that's, I think, think that's the thing with Stephen King too, is in the past, I mean, uh, we're gonna be talking a lot about made for television uh, during this episode and streaming, made for made for streaming. Uh, but Stephen King, I mean, he, he did Salem's Lot, he did It, Desperation. Um, he, he's done a lot of miniseries, uh, The Stand, I can just go on and on where it was a few hours of the story and that was it. And right. so I think uh, I'm curious to see how this story will play out in him writing it. Um, but um, we're anxious to continue watching and we'll keep you updated on more of the Lizzie story episodes. Uh, moving on, we did finish uh, Sweet Tooth uh, from Netflix. Uh, it debuted on June 4th. Um, it is an American fantasy drama uh, developed by Jim Mickle. It's based on the comic book of the same name by Jeff Lemire. So what did you think of this first season of Sweet Tooth? You, since we've both read the book um, and we've now finished the season one. Well, uh, so let me preface with this. When I read Sweet Tooth, um, I also did it in one sitting. It took me maybe five, six hours of one day. I read it all. I started and then I had to like pause for little amounts of time because the story is extremely heavy at parts. And I was like literally crying yeah, because it hits it's a heavy hard. story. It's a heavy story. And but, well, but I want to mention describing emotions for this, the book is a way different journey than describing the season one. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, you know, that's why I'm prefacing it with this. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's something that I read. It emotionally, it hit me in an extremely personal way. Yeah. It, it truly absorbed me. It, yeah. It became a world that I was a part of. And it's very engaging it's when very you engaging. pick it up. It's one of those books, like you said, it really serves it best to read all in one setting. And right. I, I believe I read it all in one setting too. And I uh, was very sad afterwards, but it was a it was a sad that was a happy and also a grieving sort of sad, yeah, which is very, um, which was new to me in comic book uh, as a medium, like having those feelings because there's only a few stories that I felt that. And one of them was the uh, We Three from Grant Morrison. I, I hadn't felt that sort of uh, intensity with emotion since that. So that's, I think, uh, why I I would celebrate that comic book as its own thing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, so again, that's just me prefacing what happened. And when we finished the TV series, I reread yeah. the comic book. You did, yeah. yeah and I so went to now. Like, and again, like four or five. So... So now let's talk about the TV series. Yeah. Uh, but again, I, I, I want to encourage everyone who's listening to this because I'm sure that most people listening to this are uh, over 16 and they probably would truly benefit from reading the comic book. It doesn't take too long and it's something that is really worth it. Yeah. 
Um, so now putting the series, uh, I, I like to like go over two reviews, like my review as just a TV series and then my review as an adaptation. Yeah. So as a series, uh, let's start there. Yeah. So as a series, I, I enjoyed it. It yeah. was uh, an interesting story. There was a lot of depth to the characters. It was really well made. Yeah. Beautiful set design. Special effects were Special really effects, good. amazing. For the most part, I would say um, a, a couple of the hybrid kits in the last episode looked unfinished, but most of them looked finished. So it was kind of odd. Um, yeah, it's. I think that some of the CGI suffered a little bit from like that pudding effect. Is what I what it looks like to right. me, where it's drippy. Yeah, squishy. And again, I think that every episode really reveals something. So it's really well established in that sense. Uh, I'm sure that somebody who hasn't read the comic book would be able to follow the story perfectly. It's uh, and it's. It's still kind of the same story as the comic in the sense of it's an imagining it's an imagining of what kind of apocalypse could happen to humankind based on their own stupidity sometimes or trying to unearth things that they shouldn't be yeah. unearthing. So I I think that the series worked really well in that sense it everybody who was part of it in terms of acting was truly amazing uh the set pieces were really well done um and again it i my only minor complaint in that sense is it clearly netflix wanted to make the series more family friendly yeah and sweet so to regardless of how you look at it it's a post-apocalyptic story. Yeah. And some of the things look too neat for me to truly believe. Yeah, when I was reading the description before we started recording the show, it's sold as uh, apocalypse Bambi sort of thing. Yeah. And I think I can agree with that. Like the tone is very uh, engaging, like, pulls on the heartstrings, but it's very heavy. It's very dark. And I didn't get a lot of the darker elements I was expecting from a Jeff, Lear, Jeff Lemire adaption for the show, which I think sort of, um, I don't know, maybe the season two will be different. Maybe it will switch to a darker tone, but I, I, I kind of missed that. Cause I, Jeff Lemire with Animal Man, with Swamp Thing, uh, from what I've read of him, he does go more horror, horror adjacent mm -hmm. places. And I didn't get those elements really with Sweet Tooth for the series. Um, as an adaption, what would you say? I mean, I know that there were a lot of changes, things like that, but uh, what would you, um, as an adaption of, of a comic book to series, how would you rate it? Uh, I would give it a, a seven, seven and a half. Again, my, my main issue is this is supposed to be a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, I feel that General Abbott in the TV series is a little bit of a cartoonish character. Um, yeah, it kind of reminded me of uh, Jim Carrey's character from Sonic. <laughs> and I didn't want to know, I didn't want that to be right, in my brain. That's, exactly what i thought too so it was funny because we hadn't really discussed this before <laughs> and that was literally what i was thinking he's like he looks a lot like jim carrey from sonic yeah and so again i feel that they were trying to make it too family friendly yeah and it loses some of this that, that villainy that villain character needed an actor with some Gravitas. Yes, absolutely. And I don't see that with this and, villain. And 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 that I, I again, I think that that's part of the whole. Like we're trying to make it family friendly, and losing the edge part that makes Sweet Tooth a true post-apocalyptic narrative. Yeah. Um, the. So I think that they could have done a better adaptation 
and still kept the story that they were were trying to tell. Um, but I feel that also the motivation for the characters has changed a little bit. Like uh, Jeopard is less sympathetic in the comic book. His backstory is heartbreaking. Yeah, and yeah, he's sort of standoffish in the series a little. Yes, and and, and I mean he was kind of similar in the comic book for a while, but but also like there was something behind it. Yeah. Here, the episode where they reveal who he was yeah. right when this scene happened doesn't have the same kind of impact. emotional impact yeah. that it did in the comic book. And again, it's because of the personal choices the character makes. The, the choices that the character makes yeah. in the comic book are... Well, and that's the, that's the gift of a, of a great storyteller is if that can be adapted that needs to be told maybe visually where we can't really get that inner dialogue that you, you read. And I think that kind of what, what missed in that piece with his backstory. Well, I think that in, in, in Tutuk, there's not a lot of inner dialogue, but the flashbacks yeah. will have, again, my issue is that his flashbacks in the TV show are not the flashbacks that he has in the comic book. Yeah. His, his character has different number one, motivations, and mm -hmm. number two, reactions. And the thing that makes Jeopard work so well in the comic book is that his initial motivation, despite him doing bad things, is a motivation that people would relate to. Yeah, exactly. And in the TV show, in the Netflix series, that is not the case. Yeah. On the other hand, Dr. Singh is given an amazing backstory, which in the comic book is only hinted at, yeah. but his motivations are different on the TV show that when you read the comic. Yeah. And again, I, I think that it, they could have kept Jepper the same and they could have made this alteration to Dr. Singh to make him more sympathetic. After all, he's indeed one of the main characters of the comic book. Sure. So, and 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 he's not a bad person per se either, but his, his driving his motivation in the comic book has a little bit of a messiah slash savior complex. Yeah. After the things that happened to him and his family because of the virus. Right. So I think that they could have made this work Maybe he's going to get that messiah savior complex, but he can't because now it's too late. Now yeah. the story has progressed too much. Yeah. So if they had done more of a, a smaller flashbacks with how the years progressed for all the characters, yeah. I think it would have been better. I, I do like what they... Uh... With with the doctor's uh, story with his wife and the neighbors, that, I think that was pretty heavy. Right. Um, so I, I I guess I gotta retract what I said earlier. That was a darker element that um, I didn't expect to see in the series. So that was cool. Um, I, I mean, I won't reveal it because this the season one is is fairly new. So maybe a lot of you listeners haven't gotten to check it out completely yet. But um, there there are some moments that um, you will definitely find yourself. Uh, like that's kind of a, makes me uncomfortable. That's dark. Right. Why would people do that? But then after living through COVID, you realize, well, this yeah, could people, people would go there. So I mean, that, that part of my, my thing is I wish the show would have had more of that Yeah. for different settings. And I wish that they wouldn't have made about such a cartoonish character. Yeah. And I wish that, if had they not gone that way with him being so cartoonish, um, they could have had his story intertwined yeah. with Jeopard's story right. the way that it did in the comic. Yeah. And, and then you would see, when you see them again... It would set up a dynamic where there's more of a, a, a good and bad... Uh, set up so that you know the juxtaposition of, of the two stories right. and how they mean to the overall uh, Sweet Tooth uh, story and why 
it's leading this way. Right. And and something that I felt because um, he's because the villain is sort of just that presence because it's an evil presence. I, no, know, I mean like, he's an evil presence, sure. and and he. Like he he could have been menacing without being cartoony, right? And, right and, yeah. and again, in the in the comic book, he's menacing enough. Yeah. He's someone who I would be really scared. Yeah. Of, and to me, it's a missed opportunity that they introduce him, they introduce Johnny, they have also a backstory. I I felt that if they were doing this season in the way that they were kind of narrating the story of like oh this is this like there's a narrator oh by the way like let's talk about that james rowling narrating is amazing yeah it his is voice good. is really great yeah. so if they had taken these moments for every character because they're like oh well you know like all these stories are going to intersect and they do in the season finale so yeah great yeah they do it in a, in a fluid way that makes sense right so but they could have done that with the proper story from the comic. Yeah. That's my issue. Yeah. They they change a lot of personal motivations and a lot of timeline events. And and to me, something that is a truly wasted. And uh, so I'm trying not to be spoilery, but in, in, in episode six, they introduce us to Jimmy Sense in the train. Yeah. And and Jimmy, it's a pivotal character in the last eight issues mm -hmm. of the comic book. Mm -hmm. And here, they just use him as a throwaway character. Yeah, on, exactly. They He's... don't even give him the same emotional connection to what he does in the last eight issues of the comic. Right. So to me, that was... He was like great value Hodo. It was underwhelming. <laughs> From Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. it was underwhelming. Yeah. Uh, they they took someone who could have become yeah. a pivotal character in the narrative. In hopefully they only are gonna do three seasons because I don't think that they should stretch it past that. No. And he could have been a main character in season three and had still the connection to Jeopard and be true to who he is in the comic, which is more of a father figure to another hybrid. And that's lost here. The way the way that he's used, again, has these, all these elements of sacrifice and friendship and whatever, but it doesn't have the same emotional impact. Yeah. So it's it's those misses yeah. that, that to me, made the adaptation just not, a seven. Yeah, not a good adaption, but... Right. Despite the fact that the show is is, is yeah. well done and it's interesting. But when you think of the source material, you're like, they really could have made it more like the source material while keeping the length of the episodes and the connections that they're trying to Exactly. Get. All right, listeners, so what do you think? All right, so starting this fall, Dark Horse Comics returns to the Magnolaverse as the leaves are turning with the conclusion of Hellboy and the BPRD's final misadventures in the 1950s. It's an atmospheric collection of five standalone interconnected one-shots written by Mike Magnola, Chris Robertson from iZombie, with artwork courtesy of five celebrated illustrators. This is reported from Sci-Fi Wire. Uh, Sci-Fi Wire has an exclusive cover preview kind of setting the tone for the macabre mood. Each Hellboy and the BPRD 1950 story, 1957 story, excuse me, also showcases evocative covers by Lawrence Campbell from Pemisher Max, coloring via Eisner award-winning colorist Dave Stewart and lettering from Clem Robbins. Now I will leave some of the uh, covers for the upcoming uh, stories for Hellboy um, in the uh, post. But um, I know this is something, uh, Gabriel, that you're excited about because you have read, and I believe reread, uh, a lot of the Hellboy uh, Magnoliaverse comics, BPRD. Um, are you going to be getting these, scooping these books up, and are you excited for this announcement? I am excited for the announcement. It's uh, obviously very interesting how uh, Magnolia is now just doing stories in the past. And so people who have read Hellboy and the BPRD comics know 
the reason for this. Yeah. And so in 19, I think he started with the 1946 one shots. Um, and, uh, and now he's up to 1957. And I think he has really yeah. done like a storyline for every year since then. And, uh, and again, it's kind of interesting how the 1940s stories were published before uh, Hell on Earth mm -hmm, from the mm -hmm. BPRD because they give you information for that that is key to the storyline. But now the stories in the 50s yeah. are not really connected in that sense. So now it's a, a true way you have a complete different cast of characters too. Yeah. They're not the same agents that you have read. So they're kind of adding to the mythos that was already established from the right. Hellboy comics before. Right. And and, and again, that's uh, it's. there are a couple of characters who are in the present because, of course, it's 1957 and you get to see them as 20-something people. Yeah. Uh, but again, there's a string disconnect between who the BPRD is when you start reading the comics. Mm -hmm. in Plague of Rocks and these kinds of storylines yeah. versus who the BPRD are, who the BPRD are in these 1950s stories yeah. with, with Hellboy. So it's it's a way of keeping telling stories yeah. uh, about these fascinating supernatural things. Because like you said, I mean, there's, there's lots of years and... Uh, breadth to the. I mean, there to the. At some verse. point, once they get to 1990, they have to stop because yeah. that's when the plague of frog starts and sure. it's, it's dated. Yeah. Inside the comic book too, like, right? This is this time 1990 something. Yeah. So it's gonna be cool to see how he weaves stories in between those. Right. Years. And so he's again. I I think that this is reasonable, and he's gonna get to that point, and yeah. then it's gonna be like yeah. So. That'd be exciting. I think uh, I'll be looking forward to those uh, in the fall. And one other, uh, this was a busy week in comics, actually. One other uh, point that I wanted to uh, focus on was the comic that we read last night, um, which is pretty heavy as well. Uh, the House, oh, let's see, I'm going to butcher this title. The Nice House the on the nice Lake. The Nice House on the Lake by James Tinian IV. Um, so this was a... Uh, recent release from DC's Black Label, and um, I'm not going to spoil it too much because the, the book just came out. Um, so we'll, we'll just give some brief reaction reviews to what we read so far of book one. Um, I, based off the title and based off of the cover art of the comic, I definitely got a different story than I was expecting, <laughs> which is always good because I don't want to be um, let down by a story or, you know, be bored, I guess. Um, so I'm definitely captivated by after reading this first book, first issue. Um, and I'm excited for now what's to come. I think that there were definitely, if this was a movie, there was great three acts. Uh, the first act really sets up a mystery. Uh, the second act kind of gives you a little bit of the meat of what's possibly going on. And then the third act of this story um, just kind of blew it out of the water and set up a horror world like no other. And uh, I will only say that if, while I was reading this and after I finished, I got a lot of Clive Barker uh, <laughs> fantasy horror vibes from it. Um, what was your reaction to reading the issue? I know that you text me and said, prepare. <laughs> So I, I, I bought it. It, I was, it was one of those things that I was looking forward to. Uh, I think that we have talked about James Tinian IV often in the show already. Um, he did this amazing job in Justice League Dark and Something's Killing the Children, the Department of Truth. And he has this very specific type of uh, horror ideas, yeah. which I think are really good. And uh, he's also writing Batman. And again, I think he's doing an amazing job, especially now with this scarecrow as the main villain and a different way of seeing what fear is and how to cause fear. Yeah. So um, when I think that we have talked about 
getting this comic back when it was first announced in March, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, and I showed the covers to you and I read the description. You were like, oh, this looks interesting. And of course, our, our mind immediately goes to, oh, an eccentric person invites former friends of right. his Cabin in the woods, different sort of parts set of up. his life. Yeah, yeah. And they, some of them know each other, others not so much. And yeah. it's, uh, you know, they're being brought there under who knows what kind of pretenses False to spend pretenses a, little bit. A, a whole week of like, you know, in a very nice isolated house by the lake. Yeah. And I was like, oh, who wouldn't, I, who wouldn't enjoy that? Right. So, but immediately my mind goes to these familiar scenarios. So I have to give mad props to James Tinian mm -hmm. for turning it on its head. Yeah. Again, like I was reading it, and the first 15 pages were okay. It was an interesting setup, but it was like, um, you know, I kind of have a feeling of where this is going. And then all of a sudden, you don't. You don't. Yeah. And it changes everything that number one, I was expecting. Yeah. And number two, I was thinking about the story. Yeah. And now it's something that I think is going to be one of these truly groundbreaking comic book stories of 2021, yeah. number one. And number two, I, I really hope that the comic reaches the kind of success he's hoping for, because in an interview, uh, James Tinian IV said that he wanted to do uh, season two and season three. Like this first storyline is what we would call season one and if the comic is successful and sells then he has ideas for the next two seasons but this still would be a self-contained storyline yeah. so you know like the father has ideas for continuing it yeah in a in a clear oh i have this up to a season three kind of thing yeah it gives me hope that he has more twists and turns prepared in case that this ends, and I would really yeah. like to see that. Even if he didn't, even if there was never another book that came out, this one story that he wrote was good enough for me. It terrified me. Uh, it left me with a very wicked ending, and it played very cinematic-like. I could see that being just a movie. It's very horror-like where, <laughs> you know, you get that one final scare at the end and it's like, holy shit. Like, yeah. it's it's very much of a Twilight Zone creep show episode. Yeah. I, I love it. I'm way excited for more. So listeners, uh, we unloaded a lot on you on this first segment. Uh, are you excited for more Lizzie's story? Let us know. Uh, did you watch Sweet Tooth? Are you reading Sweet Tooth? Give us some feedback. What about the Magnoliaverse coming this fall from Dark Horse Comics? Do you want to uh, read more adventures of Hellboy in BPRD's final misadventures in the 50s? Uh, what about the James Tinian work that we were just discussing? Are you excited to read that? Let us know in the comments below. I'm going to shine my light on my own macabre collection for the next segment, and then Gabriel's going to return for one last final scare. For this week's Macabre Collection segment, I'm going to go back to my own collection and shine my light on a few boutique labels online that I have used to build my own uh, horror movie book collections from. I was checking on my website, Fatal Follower at Horror Amino. I do a lot of reviews, book reviews, comic book announcements, and so forth. And a couple followers contacted me and said, we really enjoyed last, last week's segment where you talked a little bit about your collection and gave a little bit of insight into some um, low-key labels that you buy from. So part of my DVD-R collection is from VHSPS, and I would say another part of it is from Bloodwave DVD. I came across Bloodwave DVD a few years ago, and I'd seen someone posted online a DVD that was not released anywhere. So I reached out to them and they kind of connected me to the site. And it's bloodwavedvd.weebly.com. When you go on the site, um, there's a few tabs you can sort of peruse around. You can look at this, 
the Gore store. Uh, you check out the About section, and you can also uh, focus on the giant DVD list that uh, is offered there. I will say I have not bought from Blood Wave in a while because I pretty much own all of his 80s horror that he's released, so I can't recommend them uh, enough. You can customize your own uh, box sets. Um, you can buy uh, the DVDs themselves only without having to do the artwork and covers, but I like my artwork and cases, so I usually do that. I have a lot of four packs, have a lot of individual releases from them. If you look at the titles on the giant DVD list, um, just to note, the Asian films are in a separate category at the bottom of the list. So if you're looking for some uh, foreign horror movies or, and so forth, um, just note that. Um, when you are wanting to order and you have questions um, or how to customize uh, like a box set or so forth, um, you're gonna email at bloodwavedvd at yahoo.com uh, with the title or titles and any questions. Um, they do offer shipping uh, free to anywhere in the U.S., and if you do a large bulk order, uh, there are discounts available for that. So I wanted to give a shout out to Bloodwave DVD. Um, great business. It's built my collection of movies up, and even though I've sort of upgraded to Blu-ray on, on a lot of the stuff I already had from them, um, I keep them around because I love those VHS transfers. Now, on to a different store. Um, that I frequent quite a bit. Uh, it's called Bull Moose, and there is a brick and mortar, several brick and mortar stores throughout the New England area, and they have a huge online presence. If you go online and look, um, they have lots of vinyl, lots of music, movies, TVs, uh, video games, books. They have a lot of stuff, a lot of hard to find things. Um, they do a lot of cool specials. What I specifically like about Bull Moose is they have uh, what are called Bull Moose Points. And it's uh, one of the company's um, way to incentivize people to remain loyal to them. And it's a computerized customer rewards card. And you sign up for it online, create the profile, and you can use it either in person or online. Um, you earn points every time you buy from them or you sell, if you sell from uh, sell stuff in person, um, you can get points that way as well. The easiest way to explain is if you have one point, you, you can get a dollar item for 50 cents. So there's a lot of things you can buy for 50% off, um, the number of points that you end up accruing. And if you decide to cash them out, determines the value of the items you buy for the half off or whatever. Uh, I, I would say if you're looking to build your um, book collection, they have a lot of new horror novels, a lot of used horror novels. Um, they're sort of like an indie Amazon, if you will, because there are lots of uh, used stuff that they sell. And I, I find most of the stuff they have uh, on Amazon on Bull Moose. So uh, you can really get some really good deals and build those points up. So I highly recommend Bull Moose. Um, so check those out if you're looking to build up your collection a little bit as well, aside from movies, but also with games, uh, graphic novels, and uh, and books. So those are the two that I wanted to, to spotlight this week. Um, like I said, I have a huge uh, horror movie collection. I also have a huge horror novel collection. And um, which is why I'm introducing this plug for Troy Escamilla. I was on Facebook the other day, just kind of mindlessly scrolling along, and I saw this really cool poster for what I thought was a scholastic uh, horror book from the 90s. And I was like, oh man, I gotta like add this to my wish list. And then I looked at the posting and I was like, oh, this is a movie poster. Uh, it's kind of cool. It's got like a zombie hand coming out of a lake holding a phone and the phone on the screen looks like a skull. Um, and there's like a house in the background. Uh, it's really cool. I'll post it in the comments of this uh, episode's link. But uh, Troy and I have been friends for a long time. I followed his career uh, with uh, directing Party Night, uh, Miss Claus, AKA Stirring, uh, teacher shortage, and now in a few years, he'll be releasing Hollow Lake. Troy and I have sort of uh, bonded on our love for masked slashers from the 80s, and so he makes 80s-inspired masked slasher movies. And so I, I really find 
a really cool connection to vibe with someone like that online and see their work in progress in real time. So I wanted to plug uh, Like, but also check out some of his older stuff. Um, Party Night and Miss Claus, you can find on Tubi for free. And Teacher Shortage, uh, you can rent on Amazon. Uh, I recommend them if you like uh, like 80s inspired slasher movies. Um, but give Troy some love on Facebook, uh, social media. Uh, give him a give him a follow or whatever. So with those things uh, plugged and sort of uh, taken um, into consideration, I really appreciate all the feedback that I've been getting on social media from followers, whether it's on Horror Amino, whether it's on Facebook, or even through email. I appreciate your suggestions, and I'm really uh, excited to hear uh, that you're interested in my own collection and, and my own uh, recommendations for building your collection. I do have a large horror collection and I'm really not one for making videos like unboxing or anything like that, but this is kind of my outlet for uh, geeking out and really uh, talking about uh, the things that um, I love as a collector. And I would say um, if uh, there's anything that I'm that's sort of new in my collection that I'm sort of fawning over. Um, several months back, I discovered um, some of the Spain horror Blu-ray releases um, through a seller, uh, Tribeca Entertainment and Bahala on eBay. Both of them have some really cool region ABC uh, Spain releases. I've picked up Dr. Giggles, Deadly Friend, um, MD Phil 5, uh, which is one of the only uh, MDville um, sequels that did not get a release uh, in the States on Blu-ray. So I would highly recommend checking those sellers out on eBay. Um, I think the more that um, I utilize my All Regions player, I have found some Region B only releases from them that I picked up that I really like. Uh, for movies that aren't going to get a release in the States. So I would say definitely um, all, all four of these, Blood Wave DVD, Bull Moose, Valhalla, Tribeca Entertainment, all of them are really cool ways to check out um, releases that aren't mainstream that you won't, you won't find on a lot of these uh, higher level um, shopping uh, boutique labels like Scream Factory, Vinegar Syndrome, or so forth. So uh, have fun discovering and digging around. I sure do. Um, I also like going in person. Um, I try to uh, check out like yard sales, things like that. Uh, a lot of vintage stores and uh, discount stores just because there's so many finds out there. And I've found some really interesting gems, especially with books. I'm a huge fan, like I mentioned uh, in previous uh, Macabre Collection segments. Uh, I love my zebra horror and any 80s horror, 90s horror books. And I found so many things um, through just digging around and looking at stuff like that. So uh, definitely um, keep up the morbid curiosity when you're shopping around and looking for stuff because you never know what you'll find. And with that, we're going to get to Don't Be Afraid of the Dark from 1973. I'm bringing back Gabriel for her reaction reviews, so stay tuned. All right, welcome to Final Scare. We're gonna do Don't Be Afraid of the Dark from 1973. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is an American made-for-television horror film directed by John Newland and starring Kim Darby and Jim Hutton. It was released by Lorimar Productions and was first telecast on ABC on Wednesday, October 10th of 1973 during the ABC Movie of the Week. It has since been shown many times in syndication and was distributed on home video and now on Blu-ray from Warner Archive, which is how we watched it. It is known as Nightmare in certain countries in Europe. Uh, the story centers around a young housewife who unknowingly unleashes a trio of hideous goblin-like creatures from within a sealed fireplace in the Victorian mansion inherited from her late grandmother that she and her husband are restoring. Now free, the creatures begin terrorizing her and later reveal their sinister plans to her. Whoever frees them must become one of them. It has since become a cult film and a theatrical remake of the same name was released in August 
2010, starring Guy Pearce and Katie Holmes. Now, there are a little trivia factoids for you. First one, director Guillermo del Toro, who produced and co-wrote the film's remake, was heavily influenced by it when he saw it on television as a child. He and his brothers would, would reportedly, reportedly follow each other around the house saying, Sally, Sally, mimicking the creatures in the 1973 film. It was something close to my heart for a very long time. We thought the movie was the most terrifying on earth, said Del Toro. Now, the remake marks the directorial debut of comic book artist and writer Troy Nixie. Nixie has written and illustrated for comic books such as Neil Gaiman's Only the End of the World Again. Uh, he's written for Harley Quinn and The Matrix Comics. Now, Gabriel, this was your first uh, introduction to the original, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, from 73. What did you think of it? It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of made-for-TV movies, I think, from the 70s, 80s, they have a lot of charm. They almost seem theatrical in a lot of the styling and the set pieces. They seem very elaborate um, and expensive. But you can tell with some of the acting that yes. you get sort of the made for television from the 70s. I think that Kim was Darby what Sally. gave it away yeah. is the acting. Um, but I mean, it's funny because if I had seen it as a kid, I probably would also have been chasing my siblings around the house, <laughs> muttering the words, and it would be one of those, like, I'm going to get you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're, waiting. Waiting We're waiting for you. We're waiting for you. So that was, uh, that was funny. It was, it was interesting. I, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. Um, now, do you remember the remake? I, you know, you mentioned it. I think that we did indeed see it together. It yeah. was again one of those things that we watch and then disappear from my mind because yeah. it wasn't precisely memorable. But when I googled and I saw Katie Holmes and Guy Pierce, I was like, "Oh yeah, I kind of remember this now." Yeah. And then I read the plot and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." I'm pretty sure that we did watch it, but it didn't leave this kind of impression on yeah. me. Which is unfortunate because we'll have to rewatch it again. Uh, there is a more of a mean-spirited uh, tone to this the remake mm -hmm. than this one, I think, uh, mainly because the daughter and the stepmom with Katie Holmes, uh, there is a relationship that begins to happen in the movie that um, I think I'm not a parent, but as a lot of parents I'm sure can relate is, you know, you're sacrificing a lot to be a parent. And so that uh, metaphor sort of becomes, uh, it, uh, becomes integral in the part and comes to fruition in the mm -hmm. result of the climax. And that is a really disheartening scene in the movie. And there are a lot of emotional elements in the remake that I, th I think uh, kind of lend it to more of like a darker fantasy a fairy tale. Um, but there are, you know, there is some gore in the remake mm -hmm. and um, there's a lot of uh, heightened sense of suspense. But for me, the original always stands out. I think because even just the goblins, which look sort of like furries, but with like potato heads, yeah. like they're just so creepy and so like comical, but there's something sort of, uh, I don't know, very unsettling about, uh, I guess, moving into a house and discovering something that you didn't initially think to be there. Of course. And so I think that is a universal fear. Uh, I know we're getting ready to move into a new house. <laughs> so we hope we don't find any goblins <laughs> somewhere. Uh, but I think it's funny because if you start with the first half of the movie, uh, Sally and her husband move in and, you know, they're talking about um, all the things they had to do to get the house situated. And they're very affluent, as you can tell. They have a, a live-in, or I don't know if she's, no, she's not a live-in, but they have a maid and a housekeeper that helps uh, Sally with some things around the house and they have a designer that's uh, sort of setting the house up for their taste level. Francisco and, Perez. Yes. <laughs> Perez, Perez, as she says. Yeah. Um, and so Sally is sort of just uh, beholden to uh, the seventies uh, time in history where she's supposed to be fitting into the role of uh, housewife and she has to comfort her husband and, she's sort of 
playing this role of um, helpless uh, woman in peril in a movie. And uh, they definitely set that a different tone in the remake, of course. There's a lot more uh, uh, moments with Katie Holmes' character where she uh, is uh, taking on, uh, you know, a role against the husband and she plays more of a part Whereas in the 70s, uh, you know, times were different. And so women's roles were uh, portrayed differently in film. But I think aside from that, uh, Sally does have some moments where she does sort of break out of that and she goes against uh, the norm. And one of them is the famous dinner party scene where she's supposed to be the great house hostess. And she even mentions that to the husband. She's like, you just want me because I'm a great host, like a hostess. And I think she kids at the at, at that part, but there's this quiet uh, scene where she's in the kitchen, kind of reflecting, and you can tell that maybe she does think that. And you know, her husband is has this position, and he's busy, and he's away from the house a lot, and so it leaves her in a position to be around the house more, and uh, sort of stalked by these little goblin creatures more. <laughs> so you're you're seeing her uh, sort of frenetic around the house, and um, she's going to her friend Joan uh, for help and guidance through this, who I thought was a great friend as well yeah. in the movie. Um, up, up to a point. Up to a point, right? Um, because she <laughs> couldn't figure out how to break a window, right? <laughs> but I mean, it's like, as much as I enjoyed the movie, I have to say the the degree of silliness in the whole life. I want to be out of this house. Is that It's okay, lay down. And even when the friend is believing her, yeah. She doesn't say, okay, let's go somewhere else. He's like, just lay down let's in the bed. Let's keep you here in the bedroom. Let's keep you here in the bedroom. Yeah. It's like, uh, Why would we she's, do that? she's saying that something is trying to kill her. Well, and the friend inside the and house. Joan believes that something that, is That's trying my to kill point. Yeah. That's the part that I don't understand. If you are the friend and you believe her and the husband is coming, why not leave the place to a motel like she's been? begging to and yeah. leave a note for the husband saying we're going to this other place right there was a mm. well and and the, to flash back a little like when they move in and sally's in the room the study and she, sally learns from the groundskeeper who's doing the repairs that he sealed up this fireplace 20 years ago at the bequest of her grandmother, whom she's inherited the house from. So right there, you can tell that Sally's curiosity is getting to her and she wants to see, she wants that opened up because she wants to use that as a space. But after so many attempts of this guy to tell her no, and she does it on her own and looks, and then eventually is op she opens it up and she frees the creatures, of course. Um, she set herself up for a lot of that too. Like even if it wasn't creatures, Obviously, it was sealed for a reason. There could have been mold. There could have been anything in there. Like, why? I didn't know we wouldn't have the movie that we had if she hadn't. But Sally is that is is desperately seeking an adventure, you know? Because desperately seeking Sally. Desperately seeking Sally, right. <laughs> is desperately seeking an adventure. Because she's trying to break away from the society she's been given. Like, she's sort of a tag-along with her husband and his success. And so... Um, which is unfortunate because she has a friend that she confides in and, you know, she stalked throughout the film and then you're, we're talking about the end. So it's, it's a very straight up film. You know, there's not, a, it's only an hour and 15 minutes, a very short, sweet uh, horror little film. But, um, you know, once Joan realizes that something is happening and uh, her dear designer gets thrown down the stairs, um, you know, very low body count film, um, you know, Sally is drugged, left in the bed, and her support system sort of flounders. Joan is trying to keep her calm while she, you know, tries to find the breaker switch. Um, and her husband finally arrives and decides he's going to, rather than, he, he calls the groundskeeper. And rather than get the conversation that could have happened over the phone, he decides to drive over there, away from his wife. And Sally's left there, drugged on the bed, while Joan is uh, frenetically trying to find uh, her way around the house in the dark. 
And there are several moments through the film where the, the goblins are stalking and playing and toying with Sally. And um, some points is comical and other points it's kind of creepy. Like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're talking to her and they're sort of like driving her crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they're just in one point where she's in the shower and one of them pulls out a switchblade and it's like, I want to cut her. And they're like, no, 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 Jen, Jen. Let's scare her, you know? Yeah, you can they're, scare they're very her by her, so. Yeah, and it's like, had that uh, goblin, I guess the head goblin, had he not said what he said, uh, we may have gotten a different story. Maybe that one may have cut her and it could have changed the whole dynamic. But either way, um, you know, poor Sally is uh, is being recruited for this underground uh goblin ring yeah. <laughs> this mob of goblins that will uh that she freed and that she will become one of them they're killing an, an army very slowly who knows <laughs> <laughs> and, it, it, and you know when you say that and at the very end it, it almost seems like they're going to take over the world like right like the right, way that they're talking like uh like that's how they first we thinking. start here and now next the world sort of thing. Yeah, is <laughs> at some point everybody will be a goblin, but right? It's like, um, but will they? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is a very um, not effective way of creating an army yeah right. it's, it's 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 not time effective but again I, I i guess that also they don't really care about time in a sense because that's what they keep saying we have lots, we have of, lots time. of time yeah. so it's like they're yeah sure. their, uh, we're eternal. Gonna, yeah we're gonna be here forever so it's okay that's like uh, you know yeah uh, take us a while but we'll do it yeah <laughs> yeah i'm curious i guess if um you know It'd be cool to see if they explored like a different timeline, like a, they, if they did like a period piece for another movie or a sequel and, and didn't do this story again. But I think they could really uh, use that idea to their advantage if they wanted to resurrect this property and do another story. Uh, because it kind of reminded me of a little bit of a, of those uh, two movies from the 80s called The Gate and The Gate 2. Did you ever uh, watch those? where the kids uh, unearth a hole in the backyard and it's these little sort of minion creatures. Yeah, of course. We have watched it several times. Yeah, actually. yeah. It kind, of, uh, it kind of has that, that uh, I guess I'd throw it in the same subgenre of yeah. tiny little terrors. But that one is more of a fun family adventure in a sense. Well, yeah, this, this one's one darker. Darker, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, think there's a... There are deaths, so... Well, and there's unintentional laughs, which is it lightens up the... The thing. I mean, when she's, you know, throwing herself against the curtains and screaming, or <laughs> she like raises up out of the blue at the at the dining room dinner. Yeah. In the dark, like it, the darkest dining it, room. It, it was just so hosting strange. party ever. Yes, and she's like, I think that it was. Just, it's like you're saying, like unintentionally funny, but she gets up and is like, she sees the thing and she loses it. She's like, Oh no, Alex! Alex, please, right. Alex, get them out. And I'm like in front of all your guests, like yeah. And these are like people that he's like trying to settle a deal on that will set him for life. Like he's going to manage a to transatlantic yeah, yeah. company. So you know, Sally's uh, her hijinks with the potato furries have put a damper on that. So it would be cur I'd be curious to see like the story picked up. To be honest, like after Sally, like. What happened with Joan? What happened with Alex? Um, you know, how many more of these people eventually? Yeah, how many joined their little goblin army? Kind of like uh, who's their goblin king? Is it David Bowie from uh, what's the movie where he's the goblin king? Is it Labyrinth? I think. So, yeah, I don't know, but I think it's a it's a fun movie. I think uh, it, I enjoyed it. Yeah, so it was a good pick. It was a good pick, and it's a made-for-TV movie. I like a lot of made-for-television movies. Um, there's another one that I I had I'd weighed showing you. Well, there was a couple. One was uh, from 1990 called uh, A Nightmare on the 13th Floor, and I may cover that one at some point, but it's a really fun made-for-television horror movie. It's kind of like... 
it tries to sell you on the sort of uh, urban legend of the 13th floor of the building. And so this reporter who's covering uh, for this travel guide magazine uh, discovers it uh, at the 13th floor of this high rise unwillingly, and she sees a murder. And the murderer, uh, he dons a, a really old, looks like a George Washington wig and an ax and he dresses very sort of like a pilgrim or a puritan um and he murders people on the 13th floor but you don't know who it is and what's happening and so it's a really cool it's a cool made for tv movie uh they used, they used to air it on uh, usa up all night uh when they would do like the movie of the week and there's another movie which i, I should have played last week for our uh, conjuring um verse talk but it's called The Haunted, and uh, it is about, it's an old movie with Ed and Lorraine Warren in it, so we'll have to watch it. Oh. Uh, it's, a, it's the Devil Made Me Do It story, actually. Uh, so I wait on those two, but I was like, eh, don't be afraid of the dark, it's fun, we're moving to a new house, let's set the mood. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, all right, so listeners, um, let us know in the comments what you thought of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark 1973, or Don't Be Afraid of the Dark from 2010. Now, if you were going to rate this movie solely on its own, how would you rate it out of a scale from 1 to 10? Mm, I would give it a solid 8. Yeah, I, I, I'm there with you. Definitely an 8. Highly entertaining, short movie, doesn't overstay its welcome. Right. Great overacting, uh, fun little creatures. Great overacting, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so with that said, uh, we're going to end our final scare segment. Uh, thank you for joining us and listening in. And shout-outs to the Horror Returns podcast for... Uh, giving us some love on social media. We could always use the help. And also to Horror Amino, my followers on there, my website. I appreciate all the feedback that you've given me on the show. And also for my own Macabre Collection segment, uh, which was inspired by your messages last week. Uh, you can find us on Breaker, Radio Public, Spotify, Anchor, Google. Uh, for some reason, you can't find us on Apple Podcasts quite yet. Uh, but uh, either way, check us out on all the platforms. And uh, aside from that, goodbye. When will they come? When will they come? When will they come and set us free? Of course they will come. You know they will. But when? 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 Soon. Very soon. It's lots of time. Lots of time. All the time in the world. All the time in the world. Time. Time. Time to set us free again. All the time in the world. To set us free. Set us free. Set us free in the world. Free. Free. Free in the world. Set us free.